This program is designed to provide general information with regards to the subject matters covered. This information is given with the understanding that neither the hosts, guests, sponsors, or station are engaged in rendering any specific and personal medical, financial, legal, counseling, professional service, or any advice. You should seek the services of competent professionals before applying or trying any suggested ideas. Beautiful, bountiful, beloved, immortal beings, and good-looking people. Remember, you're good-looking because you're always looking for and finding the good. And we have good in abundance because you have consciously and conscientiously tuned into the joy of living with your humble host, Barry Shore, B-A-R-R-Y-S-H-O-R-E, Barry Shore. And you have made the decision to seek out and become the best you possible. That's the reason you're here listening. The only reason you're listening is because you care the most in the whole world about you. And that's good because when you become the best you possible, you make the world a better place. You make the world harmonious, loving, kind, filled with joy and happiness. And you are listening to the joy of living carried over this magical, mystical, mythical platform called Internet Radio. And you are being hosted by K4HD.com. So any questions you want to have, just put them up on the board. And you are joined with 280,124 people around the world who have tuned into the joy of living with Barry Shore because, again, you care most about you. And you know that on this particular show that you will become healthier, wealthier, and wiser by listening to the people that we bring to you every week. But this week is unique. This week features someone dear to me for decades, someone who has inspired me. If there's anything you like about Barry Shore and what he brings to the world, you are going to meet one of the major reasons for my being so positive, purposeful, powerful, and pleasant in this world. So get ready, put on your seatbelts, because this show will just be that which brings you more joy than you could possibly express in a month of Sundays as the contrast go. So here we go. You remember on this show, everybody knows that we work with the three fundamentals of life. Those three fundamentals are number one, life. Your life has purpose. Every life has purpose. And when you live in a purposeful, driven world, the corollary of that is you can go mad. Now, in this case, mad is a great acronym because it stands for go make a difference. When you lead a purposeful life, you make a difference in the world. And it can be small, it can be large, but every difference makes a difference in the world. And you make the world a better place because of that. And the third part of the three fundamentals is that you, by uncovering and unlocking the power and the secrets of everyday words and terms, you can bring about the kind of world we all want to live in because you will be thinking, speaking, and acting in a positive, purposeful, powerful, pleasant way. Simple example, www. If you ask anybody, what does WW stand for? They'll tell you how something to do the internet. And factually speaking, they're correct. But in our world, the world of the positive, purposeful, powerful, and pleasant, WWW stands for, drum roll, fanfare, da-da-da-da. What a wonderful world. <laughs> and what a, is a word, W-H-A-T-A, what a wonderful world. Tip of the hat, of course, to Satchmo Louis Armstrong for enabling that song to go not just viral, but to touch hundreds of millions, if not billions of people around the planet. And whenever you hear the opening bars of that song, what a wonderful world. Right away, what do you do? You have a smile on your face. You can't help it. And smile is one of the most important, powerful, and inspirational acronyms that you'll ever learn. So learn this and incorporate it in your very being. Smile, S-M-I-L-E, stands for seeing miracles in life every day. <laughs> seeing miracles in life every day. 
Now, invariably, when I'm speaking to people, whether it's 50 or 5,000, and right now I have 10, 12, 14 questions up on the board, people say to me, but Barry, sure, I've been up for hours already. I haven't seen any miracles. And I ask them, are you here? Can you hear? Can you see? Do you have water to drink? Do you have food to eat? Do you have a place to sleep? Do you have family? Do you have friends? Those are all miracles, miraculous way of living. Now, how can I prove that to you? Very simple. More than a million people did not get out of bed this morning. They died. <laughs> you didn't. You're here. You're listening. The fact that you're alive gives you the ability to live in this world and to go mad, to go make a difference. And as most of you know, some we have about 230, 240,000 people listening every week, but there's another 40 plus thousand that come in because their friends say, you got to listen to The Joy of Living with Barry Shaw because it's an upbeat and very helpful kind of hour that you can invest in yourself. So most of you know the story, but just for those who don't, so let me see, on September 17, 2004, I was standing up in the morning, just like I hope 99.99% of everybody listening, hale and hearty, able to leave tall buildings in a single bound. That evening, I was in the hospital, paralyzed from my neck down. I became known as what's known as a, a quadriplegic. That means that nothing on my body moved. I was completely paralyzed, and it was not from an automobile accident or a spinal injury. It was a rare disease that took over my body in a matter of hours, and I was completely paralyzed. Nothing in the body moved. I was in hospital many months. I was in a hospital bed in my own home for two years. I couldn't turn over by myself. I was in a wheelchair for four years. I had braces on both my legs, from my hips to my ankles, and that was progress. And now, thank God, today, I am vertical and ambulatory, albeit with the help of a six-and-a-half-foot walking wand made for me by a Zen master. So I'm a tripod, not a biped. And I still can't walk up a stair by myself or a curb, and I have 12 hours a day, seven days a week. But you hear my voice. My voice is positive, purposeful, powerful, and pleasant. Why? Because I've learned to be able to see miracles in life every day. Every day. I have to share with you what my eight-year-old niece came over to me a couple of weeks ago and said to me, Uncle Barry, can we spell smile S-M-I-E-L? And I thought about it, smile, smile, why not? And I asked her, how come? And she says, because then it would stand for seeing miracles in everyday life. <laughs> Out of the mouth of babes. Isn't that wonderful? Because when you do be able to see miracles in your life every day in your everyday life. Then you do what we call neuro-linguistic programming. And you start thinking good, speaking good, acting good. And when you do that, you make the world a better place. You are going mad. And when you do that, you create the kind of world we all want to live in. CREATE is a wonderful acronym, by the way. CREATE stands for Causing Rethinking, Enabling All to Excel. Causing Rethinking. Enabling all to excel. Now, everybody has a brain, thank God. And your brain, you have 50 billion brain cells. You have a trillion synapses connecting them all. And they're there for more than just to decide what kind of latte you want this morning. They are there to be able for us to think in a positive, purposeful, powerful, pleasant way, and therefore bring about benefit in the world. And we're going to be able to learn benefit by knowing and saying these two words. And I'm going to ask you, if you say these two words consciously and conscientiously three times a day for the rest of your life, you will make a difference in the world. And these two words are, drum roll, fanfare, da-da-da-da. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank stands for to harmonize and network kindness. To harmonize and network kindness. The Dalai Lama has been quoted as saying, and I read in his writings, be kind whenever possible. And it's always possible. <laughs> Just think about it. You're going to your uh, coffee shop, and we're all able to go back to coffee shops and order, and you go in, you order your fancy latte for $5.50, and someone brings it to you. You say, thank you. You go into your fancy coffee shop, and you order your fancy latte, and somebody doesn't bring it to you. You go up to the counter, and they say, oh, I'm so sorry. We forgot, and we'll bring it to you later. Another few minutes goes by. They bring it to you. You still say, thank you. You're walking out of the coffee shop, and it's raining out. Somebody holds the door open for you. Thank you. You're walking out of the coffee shop and someone slams the door on you. Thank you. You're in traffic. You're late for an appointment and someone cuts you off. You say, 
thank you. You get up in the middle of the night and you stub your toe and it hurts. Thank you. To harmonize and network kindness. Think, thank, think stands for to harness insightful neural connections. To harmonize and network kindness. Kind stands for keep inspiring noble deeds. And I cannot think of another human being excuse me, in my life that exemplifies the idea of keep inspiring noble deeds than one of my dearest, oldest friends in the world. And I'm going to ask him to say a huge hello right now. His name is Dr. Hubie Jones. Hubie, would you be kind enough to say a big hello to 280,124 people around the world? Hello, this is Hubie Jones. (laughs) Hubie Jones is the exemplar of what it means to live a life of purpose and make a difference. If I start reading his CV right now, it will take us to the end of the show. So I'm not going to do it, but I'm going to highlight just a couple of things. I'm going to go right deep into Hubie because I want you to hear his voice his being, and what he is and does and what resonates in the world. Uh, On on the most fundamental level, he is a charter trustee and a senior advisor and the social justice entrepreneur in residence of a very important organization called City Year, Inc. He's also the Dean Emeritus of Boston University School of Social Work, which is a major deal in the world. He is the founder and president of the Boston Children's Chorus, so he knows all about harmony through music and song. And in my humble opinion, one of the most important parts of his CV is that he's married to amazing Catherine for 53 years. They have eight children, 11 grandchildren, and growing. But For me to introduce Hubie now and then ask him to start speaking about a question I'm going to ask him is that Hubie, I have known since the age of 15, and chronologically, I'm 71 right now. And at the age of 15, Hubie made me a millionaire at the age of 15. And what I'd like to do right now is introduce my dear friend, Dr. Hubie Jones, to speak about what it is that he does in the world on a day-to-day basis in reaching out, creating programs, and helping tens of thousands of families that otherwise may not have the kind of opportunities that are exist in the world, except for the fact that Hubie has created these, these platforms that allow people to use what is available in this, the most wealthy country in the history of the world, and therefore fulfill their potential. My dear, beloved friend, Hubie Jones, talk to us about what it means to go out of the world and bring your love and kindness to the world. Well, I've been fortunate enough. First of all, I'm a social worker. I'm also a black man. Uh, and I also am a father and a husband, and uh, those are three important things about me. Uh, I had the great pleasure of meeting Barry when he was 15 years old, when I was a social group worker at the Boston Children's Service Association, where I ran neighborhood clubs. And uh, the neighborhood clubs would have a young person referred to us who had some difficulties, either physically handicapped or having some emotional problems. And we would go into the neighborhood and find other young people uh, to join this club. And uh, in in Brookline, there was a young man who was having some, some difficulties. And that led to having really some peer group problems, and I went in and and found Barry Shaw and said, look, uh, this is what this club is about, and we need you, and the thing that I first understood was this was a young person with empathy, with empathy, and he was a person who would be there and present. Uh, for a young person who was having difficulty getting along with peers and having his own emotional problems. And so he, with this, with, with this club, uh, 
help this young man uh, ultimately move on to become a very successful person. And so that's how I met Barry Shaw. And, uh, and I have thought about him for years. And every time I pass the street in Brookline that he lived on, I think about him. And I suddenly got a call from him recently, and here we are connected again. Hey, but by the way, just let me let me interrupt for just one moment, Hubie. I got to make people understand that, that was fifty-six years ago. Yeah, exactly. exactly, exactly. <laughs> because there is no time and space when you're dealing with the heart, when you're dealing with the the basis of life, the soul, then there is no time and space. Nothing separates great people, right, Hubie? And that's yes. your genius. That's what you bring to the world. Hubie has founded so many amazing programs because he is a pure soul. On the outside, he said he's black. By the way, it just happens to be that I'm what other people call white. I'm Caucasian. But so there, there's no there's no color involved when you're talking about the soul. It's the essence of his being. He is the ultimate giver in life. And as I said, he made me a millionaire, a multimillionaire when I was 15. I just didn't realize it enough. And it had nothing to do with money because true wealth has nothing to do with money. He enabled me to open my eyes as a young man. And Hubie went on to become this giant in the world. So tell us about one or two of the programs that you have been able to start, foster, grow, and what it's meant for the community of Boston and around the world. Well, first of all, uh, when I was the director of the Roxbury Multi-Service Center uh, in Boston, uh, we had, uh, this, this was a program, uh, a social service agency that served the community, uh, and folks came to us who had all kinds of problems, uh, and we were seeing parents come to us whose kids were being bounced out of the Boston public schools illegally because the schools were saying that the kids were too disturbed, too retarded, too difficult to deal with, and they basically told the parents, don't bring your kid back to school. Oh, my gosh. Okay? So uh, so the social workers in the agency came to me and said, look, we're seeing a lot of this. This is a pattern, and something has to be done about it. Uh, as fast as we get these kids back into school, because in some cases we would have, we had a mental health unit and we'd do a, an evaluation of these kids and we would find that 85% of them were not uh, so retarded or so emotionally disturbed that they couldn't function in a regular classroom. And so we'd go back to the, we'd go to the school and say, no, this young person can't function in a regular classroom if certain things were being done to support them. In some cases, the schools were so destructive uh, we raise money to get these kids into private schools. So suddenly the, the, the social workers came to me and said, Hubie, look, this is a systemic problem. And you like to jack people up who aren't doing the right thing. So why don't you, why don't you do something about this problem because it's systemic? So I said, okay. So I called together a group of social workers and psychiatrists and, and, and psychologists from a whole set of helping agencies in the greater Boston area to come to the Roxbury Multi-Service Center where we could talk about, are, they, are you seeing the same problem of kids excluded from school? And they said within a few minutes, yeah, we're seeing the same problem. It's not a problem endemic to the black community of Roxbury. And so uh, we said, I said, okay, we have to do something about it. So we formed a task force on children out of school. And uh, I raised some money, uh, got a young man who was a, getting a doctorate at Brandeis University's Hello School, who got interested in the problem and said, look, I can do this. I have a, a national 
uh, Institute of Mental Health Fellowship for my doctoral program. Uh, I, I can do this for free if I can use some of the data that I, I get for my doctoral dissertation. I said, terrific, that's a good deal. So Larry Brown, Dr. Larry Brown, who I still am connected with, uh, led a study, raised some money to do it, and uh, after a year, we had the results. 10,000 young people, students in the Boston Public Schools, were excluded from school. 10,000. Woo! 10,000. And uh, when this came blazing across the front pages of the Boston Globe and the Boston Herald and so forth, it stunned the Boston community. So we had taken a social condition that had existed for a long time and lifted it up to the level of a social problem. Okay? As a result of that, uh, David Bartley, who was then the Speaker of the House in the State House uh, in legislature, called us up and said, look, uh, wow, what an important study you've done. Would you send me 500 copies so I can share it with the legislature uh, and some of the community groups that I'm associated with? We said, fine, absolutely. We sent it. He sent him the 500 copies. A week later, he called us up and said, look, I'm really interested in doing something about special education and making sure that kids who have special needs are educated within the mainstream of schools. Uh, would you come in and help us write a piece of legislation that would uh, guarantee that all kids with special needs in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts would get education in the mainstream of, of schooling? And for kids who couldn't be handled that way, that there would be money for them to get private schooling as well. So we said, fine. So he came in, had this legislation written, and it was passed, Chapter 766, the Special Education Law in Massachusetts, the first one in the nation to guarantee children with special problems, special needs, education. Uh, and, and as a result of this, uh, we, we began to get kids back into school and particularly for kids who were Latino, because 7,600 of the 10,000 were kids who were Latino, and they were not in school because uh, there were no bilingual educational programs. Wow. I'd like to interrupt just for one moment, because we have lots of questions up on the board, and um, many of them are, are running around the same issue, and I, I want to emphasize something to everybody. Again, I am privileged to know this amazing man, Dr. Hubie Jones. Uh, I want to emphasize two things that you said, Hubie, because you repeated them and you know what you're saying, but I want everybody else to understand because remember, they tune into the joy of living because they want to become the best you possible. You said these words. Somebody came to you and said, do something about it. And then you said, further after a few more minutes, we want to, be, we want to do something about it. The ability to take action, not just to see a situation, bemoan it, or concerned about it, or just say, isn't it bad? But to do something, I believe in my heart, is the hallmark of Hubie Jones. It is what you gave me as my inheritance. This is what you bequeathed to a 15-year-old boy, which is worth multiple, many millions of dollars. It's the ability to take action when there's something that needs to be done and corrected. And look what he did. The first legislation in the nation, the first legislation in the United States of America that guaranteed to help all kids with education. That well, the thing that was important, Barry, here is that this model was taken by Marion Wright Edelman, the head of the Children's Defense Fund, and then the national law was passed two, two years later. 
Okay. <laughs> so the thing that's interesting is that from a small social service agency in the black community of Roxbury, we ended up ha- having an impact not only on policy in the state, but also in the nation. Okay. And that's and, the genius of this. By the way, I, I, again, only because I have to put things in context for people because they're listening from all over the world, by the way, Hubie. I mean, we have people listening in right now in India, in Hong Kong, even in mainland China, um, in Latin America, and in Canada, and throughout wow. Europe, in Africa, people all over the world listening. So I just want to emphasize two things. Anything and everything you want to know about Hubie Jones, and there's lots that you want to know because you should be following more about this amazing man and his legacies and what he's doing. All you have to do is go to my website because everything will be there. You don't have to remember anything else. www, remember what that stands for, what a wonderful world, dot barryshore.com, B-A-R-R-Y-S H-O-R-E. Go to barryshore.com so you can listen to this again, which you want to do. You want to share this with at least five people because then over a million people will be hearing it around the world. You certainly want to do that because you want to understand that Hubie Jones didn't all just do things by himself. He worked always with other people. He was that glue that bound everybody together, but it's because he took action, doing something, recognizing the ability to make things happen just because he wasn't looking at the odds. He was just saying, let's do something because it wasn't right. He wants to fix the world in the most positive way. He fixed himself. He fixed the world. He gave this 15-year-old white boy who's now 71 with a nice beard and, you know, married son and grandkids. But The legacy continues. That's the genius of living well in the world. You could become healthier, wealthier, and wiser by listening carefully to what Hubie Jones is talking to us about. So I just wanted to put that back in context, and let's go back deep into Hubie. Well, I think the thing that's important is, and I think you you made it, Barry, is that no one gets anything done by themselves. You have to collaborate with other people who share the same passion, the same concerns, who have the same uh, 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 being upset by things that are not, not, not right, that are unjust, and who will stay together, who will hang together long enough to figure out how to get it done. And the thing everybody needs to know, that when you do something, when you decide to do something, do it well. Be reliable, be responsible, be ethical, be compassionate, because that leads to building social capital. And when you have social capital, you can do exactly what I've been able to do, is I've been able to call people together over and over again about a problem about a real serious civic concern, about an opportunity that needed to be addressed and used, I could call people together and they would come because I had social capital. I was, I was, they believed I, I was honest, I was ethical, I was compassionate, and I got things done. So as a result of that, and I've been able to bring people together and, been, and be a convener. And out of that, I have uh, uh, been a part of the founding and leadership of at least 25 nonprofit service institutions over my 50-plus years in the Boston community. (laughs) By the way, again, I want to... It all all comes from uh, not only doing it, but doing it well. I've been a part of a lot of aborted... Uh, action groups, people who come together and say, "Yeah, I'm sick and tired of this. I'm going to do so and so, and I'm going to I'm going to take charge," and, and then you don't see them two weeks later. Okay. So I, I want to emphasize. That, yeah, let me just break in. They're saying they're going to do something, and they and they say, "Well, I I didn't get it done because my kid got sick or whatever it is." Right. 
There are no excuses. So let me just yeah, recap like, something that, that you said to you, because it's just so it's, it's imperative for people to know this. Finding something that's not right, many people can do. Complaining about it, most people can do. But yeah, doing right. something about it, doing as, as Hubie emphasized here, do it well, be reliable, responsible, ethical and compassionate, and you will create the most valuable currency in the world. The most valuable currency in the world is not the United States dollar. Very good. It's not gold. Very good. Not platinum, diamonds. It is social capital because social capital can bring together some of the most interesting people in the world. People Hubie has dealt with presidents of the United States. He was a trustee of the Daner-Farber Cancer Institute for 10 years, a trustee of the Foley-Hogue Foundation 25 years. He was on a, as a panelist on 515, which is a, a public affairs program in WCVB-TV in Boston. He has an honorary doctorate degree from Northeastern, University of Maryland, Lesley University, Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts, University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth, and the Massachusetts School of Professional Psychology. Um, Not only is he a doctor of letters, (laughs) he is a uh, a Bill Gates, a uh, Bezos, and a Rockefeller all rolled into the one. And as I said, because he's married, he's concerned, he knows that life is to be lived inspirationally. He is a man driven by purpose. He is a true madman. Makes a difference. You know that you're mad. You know that, Hubie, right? Um, Go make a I, difference. I am. I, I am. I am angry. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I'm. A, I'm angry about injustice. Okay. Yeah. I, the thing that I've been fortunate to do is I found a way to take my anger and translate it into energy to pursue constructive change. Wait a minute, okay. this, is, this is genius. I want to ask okay. you, I want to go that's, deep into something. That, uh, that's the thing that I was, I've been able to do. So this is, I, I, used to tell, I used to tell my students when the School of Social Work, yes. if, you're not, if you're not in touch with your anger about what's going on in this society and in many parts of the world at least twice a week, you're in danger of losing your mental health. Very good. Okay, you're in danger of losing your mental health. But as you say, Channel. Let, let's channel that anger and rage. By the way, you see in the word anger, you have the word rage. Yep. And you're going to channel that anger and rage and range it into energy so that it becomes positive, purposeful, powerful, and pleasant. And then you can build cap- social capital that can be translated into enormously beneficial programs. I'd like to ask my friend, Hubie Jones, a personal question. Hubie, yep. tell us a little bit about your background as a kid. What were you like at 15? Where do you come from? I grew up in the South Bronx uh, in a very difficult neighborhood. Uh, by the time I was a teenager, it was overrun with the drug traffic uh, and teenage gangs. Uh, so I had to be able to find a way to navigate through the mean streets of the South Bronx. Uh, and but fortunately, the public schools worked. So when I got into you know, to the, into, into schools, I was I was safe and being well educated. Uh, the parks worked because they were well supervised. Where I played basketball, I was upon end. Okay, uh, and so I lived in a house, an apartment building, a tenement that was once described by the Bronx Home News when they were when they were doing a a crusade about sanitation issues in in New York. They they. They 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 labeled my house the dirtiest house in the Bronx, okay? Yeah. Uh, but wait a minute, but no, let me ask you: did, did you have a mother and a father? Now I'm going to tell you. Yes, I had a mother and a father, uh, and and five sisters. Five uh, sisters? Father, oh my God! Five, yeah, five <laughs> sisters. My father was a Pullman porter. Oh. For the for the, for the New York City, New York Central Railroad. 
Uh, he also was a member of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, who was led by A. Philip Randolph. Okay? Yeah. And my father, who was brilliant, uh, graduated from college as a valedictorian at Lincoln University in Jefferson City, Missouri, wanted to be a doctor, but because it was difficult for a black man back in, in 19, 1919, uh, when they were graduating from high school, he was graduating from high school, to think about really being a doctor. Uh, and the only jobs really available to black men at that time were either the Pullman Company or the, or, or, or the U.S. Postal, post Office Woo. as stable as stable jobs. Okay, so my father was a, was a Pullman porter for 44 years, but he was able to use his brains by being a legal advocate for men on uh, Pullman porters who got into trouble or on the road. And so he would take their cases, write briefs, and represent them uh, before man the Pullman company management. And he was very, very, very good at it. So, uh, and I heard a great deal about A. Philip Randolph, who became the dean of black leaders by the 60s. Right. Mm -hmm. I heard a lot about A. Philip Randolph. I, in my house, he Ray Philip Randolph was known as the chief, okay? The chief mm -hmm. says this, the chief says that. And so I had these images, right? I had a father who was a terrific uh, legal advocate on a volunteer basis, using his brains, to, you know, to be helpful to others. I had a mother who was at one point was a, just a homemaker, and she decided that she would go back to school uh, and get a academic high school degree when my two younger sisters were in high school. And in fact, she graduated from high school with them because she went, when she went to high school, uh, she just got a secretarial degree. Wait a minute, wait a minute. First of all, isn't this a, I mean, you should be, you probably are, you're smiling right now thinking about your mother graduating high school with your sisters is that not right. is that not beautiful and sweet and and yeah. truly, uh, that that's and, a home that's a home newbie he was working in a daycare center in, a, in the kitchen at the time <laughs> okay then after she got out of high school she went to she went to night school at hunter college wow and ultimately got a ba uh in uh a bachelor's degree uh in education and uh, then they, at that point, they took her out of the kitchen, and she became a, a, a nursing school teacher in, in this daycare center she was in the, where she worked in the kitchen. This and then is... she went on to get a master's degree at night. No, she didn't. Yep, and then they, then they, and then they made her a supervising teacher. Okay? So I, and she was very, a very ambitious woman, okay? Uh, as you can see, and uh, so I, I had, I had this, I had these kinds of things going for me, okay, uh, and uh, and so, and by the, but when I, by the time I was ten years old, my parents had made it clear to me that I had a free college education waiting for me at the City College of New York, and that's because of. Because it was, it was, because it was, it was free. There was no tuition. City, okay. City College of New York, when you went there, had no tuition. No tuition. In other words, if you had the grades to get in, that's you right. had to have a certain grade level. Let's call it a B, B plus, whatever it was. All right, that's right. If you had the grade level to get in, you could go to one of the better schools in the country, in the in a public arena. And it was free. It was free. Isn't that, was, I mean, th and, we're thinking and, about And my parents told me, it's waiting for you. Just don't mess up. Okay? Just, just study hard. Be successful in high school. Pass the regents exams, which are these standard exams we had to take. Right. Played a major role in whether you got into these institutions. And, uh, 
and uh, the City College of New York was a big lift for me. And, and by the way, let me just say it like this. Um, white and Jewish. Yep. It was a big lift for many Jewish kids. Oh, yeah. It was the, the beautiful thing about CCNY. Again, I'm saying this. You're just a, you're only a few years older than me now. It's interesting enough. We always stayed the same ages older. But <laughs> so you're 86 chronologically. I'm 71. So we can talk about it as mature men. But the point yeah. is that CCNY was the ultimate melting, blending pot for people who wanted to better themselves in life. It was. And it was, and people played ball together. They did things together. They talked together, because it was everybody knew that we were here to do, and be the best we could be. Am I correct? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Now I also uh, had a, had the remarkable thing of having Dr. Kenneth B. Clark uh, as my introductory psychology teacher. Wow. Uh, he, and he 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 was a famous black uh, right. social psychologist, psychologist. And at the time I was in his course, he was uh, head of putting together the brief uh, in uh, a social science brief for Brown versus the Board of Education. Oh my gosh, this is wonderful! So he came into class. So he came into class one day and said, "Look, uh, I don't know if you know this, but I'm." been part of putting together a social science brief that will document that the separate black kids uh, on the basis of race in public schools is psychologically damaging. Yes. Okay, I, I need to interrupt just one moment because, again, most of the people who are listening are, interestingly enough, under the age of 35. So... It's so important for everybody listening, make sure you go to the website, www.barryshore.com, listen again, and look up some of these things that Hubie is talking about. Look up CCNY, look up Brown versus Board of Education, look up Dr. Kenneth Clark, and just begin to get a sense of the historical value of what we're working with here, because, again, Hubie is the embodiment, the personification of something he said in the beginning of the of our show here, and time is going by so fast, empathy. He lives empathy, but he also understands that empathy alone will not create the kind of change that we need. Yes, there's an anger that needs to be put into the recipe, but the anger needs to be channeled into energy. And when you understand that you work together with other people in a responsible manner, and you do things well, and you're ethical, and you're reliable, and compassionate, as we said, you will create the most valuable capital in the world, social capital, and bring about change for tens, if not hundreds of thousands, not in Hubie's case, millions of kids, and not just in one generation, generation after generation after generation. Uh, I just want to be clear. On, we all, unfortunately, we only have another six or seven minutes, Hubie, so, um, and we could go on for six more shows, but I just want to keep, keep you in this pathway. Um, just as a quick recap here, the genius of what you're telling us, you grew up in a difficult situation, as difficult as most anybody can have, mean streets of the South Bronx, as you said, but you had two great advantages. Number one, you had a loving mother and father, and number two, you had siblings, Five yeah, I mean, you know, let's let's and, be and real. The older ones were models for me. They paved the way. They were models. They you know, they went on to Hunter College, which was a, which is also a free. By the way, this is so important. What he's saying, you see, I have a belief that in today's world, as far as we come, we have so much farther to go because the kinds of models that we have or that kids have are not in their immediate family. Sometimes the models they have are the kinds of models that you can't ever see. In other words, to have as your model a rap singer or a basketball player, a football player, or a movie star, whatever, those are interesting, but they're not in what I will call in the realm of being obtainable. Whereas if your sister goes to college, that becomes a role model that's attainable and beneficial. You hear what I'm saying? And I well, think in fact, the fact that some research that shows that most people 
uh, do, do not that celebrity models is not what most kids use in order to make it to, to make it and 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 and, and to and, and to succeed. It's 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 usually family members, coaches, teachers, ministers, other people who are more immediate to you in your life. Excellent. Those are the you know, those are the images. Those are the models that make a difference. It's not the celebrity stuff. And by the way, are kids seeing good, positive, purposeful, pleasant models in their family and their coaches and their ministers still? Yeah, of course. So yes, yes, a lot of this is happening. Good. Uh, even in even in you know in challenged situations. You know, a lot of this is happening, and this is what has to be nurtured. And uh, anything we can do to nurture it, and particularly for kids who are in who are adolescents, because adolescence is a very difficult period to go through. Okay. Yes. And you really have to be anchored, okay, in social institutions, such as religious institutions, such as boys and girls clubs, uh, you name it, schools. Uh, those are the things that can help you get through the normal turmoil of adolescence as you begin to find your identity, understanding what, who you, what, what you believe, what you really care about, and what you want to become. Okay? And so uh, we have to do a lot to really help young people uh, you know, make, this, make, these, make this transition from being from being young people to being adults. By, by the way, I, I love how you phrase that. That's a beautiful term. The normal turmoil of adolescence. Absolutely. The norm, it, it is normal. So, Leo, so let's talk about music and such, because I find that to be one of the most uh, affirming aspects of life. And tell us about the the Boston Children's Chorus, because you've been involved with that for now, what, 17, 18 years, and, and how that really helps kids who are, as you just said, you know, the normal turmoil of adolescence, how the ability to work together in a choral setting with music and song helps kids. Well, in, well, in 2002, I was really beginning to read some stuff about how the arts are probably the best way to bring young people together across the divide of race, ethnicity, social class, sexual orientation. And so that was in my head as I went to a city year national convention and had and saw and heard the Chicago Children's Choir. A group of mostly high school kids who came onto the stage sang at a level of excellence that blew me away. And I said, oh, my goodness, this may be the model I've been looking for. I have found other, I have tried other ways through camping, through after-school programs, you name it, to try to bring young people together across these divides and have effective, authentic social integration. And I had limited success. And then I, so I saw this model... And uh, I then said, let's see if we could do it in Boston. And so I brought a group of people together. Here, here you go again, being a convener, calling people together, saying, Don't we, shouldn't we have something like this? And I put it, putting together a board, raising some money. And uh, we started with, uh, oh, let's see, in 2003, we started uh, with uh, 30, 30 kids. Uh, we started with 30 kids, and in January 2004, the Chicago Children's Choir came to Boston to sing at our first annual Martin Luther King Jr. concert. Uh, and I wanted Chicago to come to help Boston see what it was we could build. They came and blew Boston away. Sang at Jordan Hall, which you know, Barry, is one of the great conservatory halls right and and that was and that was the beginning 
So we now have over 500 kids uh, in 13 choirs, uh, and uh, we have achieved really terrific social integration of a diverse group of kids. They come from 120 zip codes. Uh, and the thing that I'm most proud of is that we have used this organization to give kids an opportunity to talk about the things they care about in their lives. So there's no rehearsal that goes on where before they start doing their singing stuff, where they don't have an opportunity to talk about issues of race, ethnicity, mass incarceration, environment, and they basically tell us this is the only place in their life they have that's safe in a loving community to do so. Because when they try to talk about these issues in school, they are shut down. Uh, I hear that. I don't want to hear about it. um, um, I'm only... (laughs) I'm, I'm crying deeply to be, have to say that our time on this session is is over. I'm going to ask you in front of hundreds of thousands of people if you'll come back again, if I've earned your love and respect, and hopefully you'll say yes. And, and I want to just say again, over decades, I've been wondering how can I ever repay Hubie for what he did for me and showing me well, the this way. this is how you're repaying me, by what you're doing. This this radio podcast is a way you're you're paying back. Big time. I love you. Okay, you take care. One second, I'm gonna hug you in front of hundreds of thousands of people. Here we go. One, two, three. I got it. I got it. <laughs> take care of yourself. Best wishes. Bye. Remember right, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you. This is the joy of living. Barry Shore, your humble host. Go to www.barryshore.com and you'll hear everything about Hubie Jones and what we talked about here. WWW, what a wonderful world. Remember life, living with purpose. Go mad, go make a difference and uncover, unlock the secrets of everyday words and terms. Thank you to Harmonize and Network Kindness. Go forth, live the blessings, spread the seeds of joy. Happiness, peace, and love. Go mad. Go make a difference.